The thing that I repeat over and over again when people ask me about making this work and how I feel being exposed this way because of the personal nature of the story or how I made the decision to tell such a personal story, my answer always is this isn't really a personal story to me. Well, obviously you were able to decide what did and didn't go on paper. Yeah, that's always the freedom we have. So of course it doesn't feel completely revealing in that sense, but it's also not it doesn't, it isn't first a personal story to me because it's actually a story from my life that I'm using to explore the topic of voice. So when I thought about what I wanted to say, I was not thinking, what do I want to tell people about myself? When I was thinking of what to write, it was, what do I want to explore about the voice? And then what stories from my life support that exploration or add complexity to an idea that I want to discuss? So I'm just a vehicle. But obviously you've got to delve into some personal things in order to tell that story. If there's a particularly personal part of it, it's the kind of coming to grips with the inability to speak. Definitely, which, yeah, was all very difficult. And I tried to, I tried to really offer a sense of the feeling as much as the contents of day by day, what I was choosing to do or what was happening, but more like the experience of time or the experience of that decision-making, a lot of self-doubt, a lot of darkness emerging that I wasn't necessarily prepared for or expecting. And for me, that even the purpose of that is just to highlight how deeply enmeshed personality, sense of self, identity, agency, autonomy is wrapped into this idea of the voice. So again, it was like a personal vehicle, but to a very broad or universal means and one that I didn't see anyone else exploring. So I wanted to draw it out. You didn't see anyone else exploring the importance of voice in day-to-day life? Yeah, I don't see it anywhere, almost. It certainly is something we celebrate in extreme contexts, like someone who's a, a particularly talented vocalist, especially in music. We talk about voice a lot in music, but outside of music, almost never. It's just something that we take for granted? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, a lot of what I was saying at the beginning of the book, too, was just, here is how I was taking my voice for granted in my life. And then when this happened... The feeling of its impossibility was the first sort of hurdle. The idea that it was impossible to live without it was exactly why it got so bad, because I was refusing to stop and refusing to take care. I just couldn't see a way to live with that piece of me missing. And then moving into the decision to let it go and sort of mourn it for a minute was ultimately quite liberating at the beginning. And that gave me an opportunity to try a different way to live. But it was sort of novel and exciting and felt much more doable in the short term. Why do you think it's something that people don't often tackle? I mean, obviously, like we've seen some art created with the blind or the deaf, things like that. Why is a lack of voice not that prominent? Well, with any story that relates to uh, a personal ability, and then especially one that isn't as frequently seen, or especially that isn't accommodated Mm -hmm. in the world, personal stories of difficulty should be told by the people who are experiencing them. So I don't know if other people who experience voice loss or voice pain like I did have just not happened to be comics artists or not happened to choose artistic media to work with, or if it's simply my sheltered life that I haven't experienced it, but I had certainly never seen it. Surely by now, everyone would have told you every piece of art. I mean, I'm sure like a few people brought up Harvey Pekar as an example. There's, well, yeah, he's come up once or twice. Um, There are a few other books that actually came out just only a couple of years before mine. So I was probably working on what I was doing at the same time as they were being released like stitches is a david small Mm -hmm. book that i've been referred to many times and these are stories i as far as i know because i haven't done all the exploring i'd like to read all of them but these are stories mostly about other illnesses like cancer particularly if there's ever cancer affecting the thyroid it's very likely to affect the vocal cords either through some part of the illness or actually in like the surgery to remove the cancer or to 
repair any damage done there can sometimes actually cause damage to the vocal cords because they are just so delicate that any small nick is like the destruction of their capacity. But that's more about sort of the underlying issue than it is day to day. Yeah, I mean, that's as far as I know. And I'm sorry to say that I haven't read these books yet. It's just there are so many books out there. There are um, a lot of books out but there. But I'm I am eager to explore more about the voice from every angle. So having having the voice piece be a part of a much larger illness or a much larger experience of health is interesting to me because in my world, it was the primary experience of health, the condition that I had. So uh, so this topic isn't like one and done for you? No, I mean, I, I'm not exploring it in comics anymore yeah. because that book is is done. But as far as using my voice, like I'm still rehabilitating. I'm still learning from the way that my pain and my body communicates to me about what I can do and what I can't or how I'm doing it, the quality of the way that I'm using my voice, how attentive I'm being to when I get a signal of stop or no, not that way, signals of pain or discomfort, all these things I have to constantly be negotiating and learning from. And in my voice explorations, I am much more interested in things like how we appreciate or not or take for granted voice in capacities that are both outside of music and outside of daily life. For example, people who need their voice for their career, Mm -hmm. like radio producers are probably the only people I can think who would really think about their voice on a daily basis and the way that they use it. And then there are people like teachers who are probably thinking about it, but much less from a perspective of this magical tool they have and much more, how can I be more effective with all of the talking that I'm doing or, you know, being tired at the end of the day. This is just one example from what I'm sure are many, but I explore that through a vocal arts showcase series that I do in Toronto that's called Ma. So it's called Ma Vocal Arts. And then what it is is just a, an evening that where I bring people together like once every few months who are from different disciplines or who have different voice practices and give them a chance on the stage to sort of bring us into how they think about their voice or what their practice is, either to experience it ourselves or to participate. So that's currently the exploration of voice that I'm continuing. And then we'll see where it still goes because I'm still experimenting on my own. And So you're actually, after all this having gone out, are more reliant on your voice at this point. Mm. I mean, from the standpoint of at least like, you know, doing these presentations, things like that. Kind of. I Well, as far as my presentations for the book go, I actually do those in silence. I've got a performance that's been tailored specifically to offer people something of the contents of the book or an experience of their own voice in that night. How does that play out? Well, this is going to be hard to describe, but it's basically just that <laughs> describe I Describe wrote... it without using your voice. Go. <laughs> I basically have the uh, the same color of red in the book presented on the screen in my handwriting for a series of slides. So, so to sort of describe it really briefly, I mean, the book itself is black and white, but there are flourishes of red throughout. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, red is playing an important role in the book, representing the voice almost as like another character mm. or like having a signal that that's its own thing, not specific to each person, but voice itself can be a character. So using that same red, I then write in my handwriting on these slides, it's sort of walking you through an introduction to what the red means and showing people images from the book to sort of give them that experience as they're learning about it in silence with me just flipping through the slides. And then at a certain point, I actually invite them to breathe with me and hum a few notes just to feel the sensation of their voice in their body again, because the room has been utterly silent for about 10 minutes at this point. It's a really wonderful experience, and it doesn't actually tax my voice very much. And once it's all done, I take off my lipstick, which is the sign in the book that ended my life, that I'm not using my voice right now. And I remove it at the end of the presentation and then offer to speak to them to answer their questions. So I've been specifically designing this tour that I've been on to keep things gentle for my needs and then 
for the Ma presentations that I do, I really just play MC. So mm -hmm. I just kind of introduce folks and then get to enjoy their voices. So this is not something that goes away. This is something you're going to have to continually deal with for the rest of your life, it sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I liken it to other other experiences of health, other diseases or conditions where you can have cancer and survive it. And that does not mean that you're never going to think about, worry about, or experience cancer again. So having had the experience, you get to choose then, you know, how much you're participating in the continued experience of health that you want. And also, I mean, perhaps a new perspective on what your life is like or what it's worth to you with something that kind of looms as a presence and you're in relationship to at all times what kind of relationship that is is up to you is it something that you're able to go days without thinking about no i think about it every day yeah i mean sometimes i just wake up in pain and there it is so i'm thinking about it and it has something to do with maybe tensions i was holding while sleeping i didn't realize and something i haven't been aware of that i need to address and other times it's as simple as oh i planned unfortunately because i wasn't thinking about my voice i plan to do several social things in a row and by the end of it i'm kind of kicking myself thinking i I could have done this better. I could have made space between these things to rest. And then it might be another day or two of pain just in response to that one kind of burst of use. So I do think about it every single day. Now that you've come up with all these different tools and, and ways of coping with it, not even ways of coping with it, but sort of ways of dealing life without a voice. And do you find that in general that you're going without speaking for longer periods? You figured out sort of interesting workarounds. I don't know that any of them are necessarily better than using your voice. Yeah, they're they're all different. Yeah. Uh, it it does still take a, a quite a bit of energy to be voiceless and still communicating yeah. around other people. There's a, a different kind of attention going into accommodating what others are able to do as far as maybe reading my lips if I'm wearing the lipstick or their patience for if I'm deciding to write because it you changes kind of had the to train your friends and yeah. <laughs> people in your life. Yeah. And then there were new people entering my yeah. life who I had to train all over again. And that's the case now. So that's what puts me in a position of picking and choosing when I'm out in the world. If I, if I want to be voiceless, that's fine if I'm going to stay home all day. But if I want to be voiceless, if I need to be voiceless and out in the world, I have to prepare myself mentally, emotionally, physically, even to just be experiencing that lack of understanding or the sort of tenuous understanding that I have with people when the communication is happening so differently than they're used to. And differently than I'm used to, because even though I've done this a thousand times at this point, I still am so much faster using my voice. And I, I love it, how easy it is. It's it's both immediate and creative and a sensation in my body. Like I can feel the vibration in my throat and in my chest and in my head while I'm talking right now. And all those things you get used to if you have a good run of a few days. But then if it has to go away again, I sort of have to rearrange my emotions around, oh, things are going to be harder for a while. The sensation of talking if you haven't done it in a while feels almost alien to you when you get back to it? Um, it's not that it's alien, but it is a really stark experience to use your voice when you haven't in a long time. I think right now, I mean, I've been only just driving for the last two hours pretty quietly because I can't do things like sing along with the radio. Then coming in and speaking in a very quiet environment where I don't have to push to project and I'm not being drawn to raise my voice by the volume of other people's voices. It gives me the opportunity to actually feel and reflect on the, pardon the pun, but like volume of sensation that's in my body when I'm doing it. So it's not that it's alien, but it is fascinating. It, it takes some of my attention away from what I might be trying to say. You were deemed a vocal abuser. Is that the... Yeah, that's the only diagnosis that that's I ever a proper got, if that medical can be called a diagnosis. Term? I don't know. I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's sort of 
I think it's sort of ridiculous. It's extremely unfair to turn the blame on someone so hard like that. Like if you broke your ankle, would they call you an ankle abuser? No, like that's, it's ridiculous. And then for it, and you know, the result is pain and an inability to use it. So like, there's not that much of a difference between those things. But for some reason, in my case, medically, that's the appropriate term. I mean, I feel like if I, if I broke my ankle doing something stupid, I would be called out for it. But you were literally just speaking. There's no underlying issue beyond that. It's really just. Yeah. That's the only thing that I've ever been offered is like, well, you must be experiencing a lot of stress. And I could explain, well, my life was not that stressful before this happened, but now it's very stressful. And the help that I received there was next to none. And the idea, the idea that there now are possible accepted medical routes for actually helping a patient who's experienced something experiencing something that's likely mostly stress. Five, six years, something like that? Yeah. like It's that big of a difference? Well, I I don't know. Obviously, doctor to doctor and office to office, things are going to travel differently and people accept, you know, new things at a different rate. So I don't really know, but I can imagine a picture of today walking into an ENT's office and having all the same procedures just to check what was going on, the, the scope they did of my throat, and then the discussion we had of, you know, how I was living my life, all of those things could have happened and easily then led to, okay, well, it sounds like this could be caused by stress. There could be like a buildup of tension in your body and particularly around your throat that's making this very painful. Why don't I refer you to like a mindfulness program that the hospital hosts covered by our insurance for eight weeks and then see if that helps you? Or why don't I send you to see a therapist? Or have you looked at the studies about how exercise can reduce stress? Like I could have been given so many different options for how to deal with my stress if the doctor had been interested in participating in my health. Um, But because I didn't have a pathology for him to be invested in or to play a part in, uh, he just basically said, like, good good luck with that, which is also something I've heard many times before with other difficulties or injuries I've had is they've said, well, definitely this is stress-related, so I hope you can figure that out. <laughs> You're talking about it in past tense. I mean, it's an ongoing thing. You know, these are things that you can continue to seek out now, but you're not sort of actively engaged in it in the same way? No, I am. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I'm seeing... able to use my voice now, so that's a part of it. But it's as like... far as like actually seeing specialists beyond? Oh, no, I, no, specialists don't have anything to offer me. Okay. If I did develop something like a polyp, like for example, if my voice started to get really raspy, I could go to a specialist. But at Things this would point, have to get even worse than they are now. Yeah, considerably. I or mean, at least physically manifest themselves. That's a, that's a difference that I don't think I was very clear with or that's hard to articulate is that I never experienced the inability to produce sound. So if I had, that would have been looked at a little bit differently. However, there are also many examples of that inability to produce sound being something that is labeled psychosomatic. And once it's thrown in that bucket, no one wants to do anything about it. The onus is entirely on the patient to figure out how to handle that. And that could have been what happened, but it wasn't. I've only ever had really extreme pain as a a symptom. And so with chronic pain, which is what it becomes after a certain length of time of experiencing the same pain, it's a similar bucket to be thrown into. It's like you're in the chronic pain bucket. Well, you're going to be the one who ultimately figures this out. And so for me to go back to a specialist at this point with the same complaint, if I told them all the things that I do, like 
practicing meditation or like going to yoga a few times a week or trying to exercise more. And I have a fairly restrictive diet because I've experienced other health issues that have diminished as I've restricted certain things from the diet that I had before. If I told them I was doing all of that, they would be like, well, great. That's that's yep. probably the best that I would tell you to do. So keep doing it and hopefully you'll feel better. I'm And I'm not saying that, you know, Western medicine doesn't have a lot to offer me for any number of other health issues I may have. But with this one, it's sort of yeah, it's sort of gone as far as it can go. Are there like support groups or, you know, now that the internet is around, is that, that all a useful tool? Are you finding other people with similar or the same issues? There are support groups. I've at least found one or two Facebook groups and there's a whole academic sphere. Mm-hmm. There are overlapping academic spheres of vocology and disability studies and all these places where people who do have struggles and other people who have research and knowledge can come together. Personally, I haven't really found need for that as much as I have need for um, people in my life to understand what I'm feeling. And for my part, I have to do a lot of work to understand both what may have brought about my voice difficulties with regards to my stress and how I handle my emotions, experiences that I've had in my life, all these things I may have yet to process, but then also the experiences of having this condition affect my life and then the ways in which I felt supported or not supported, how those things now are also left to be processed, things that I have to both confront in my life day to day, but also find some deeper meaning from and like unravel the emotional knots that have been tied. So I'm working on all of those things, but it's not really going to erase the need for me to consider my voice and my health as a priority. It sounds like you were getting at something or you were you were looking at something broader when you were working on tackling this book. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I have to assume that working on comics, especially the way you were doing earlier, you were self-publishing, right? Or publishing yeah. online, that it perhaps began life as as a kind of coping mechanism for you. Uh, well, yeah, that's an interesting one. I actually had, because I had so much refusal for help on the medical side of things mm-hmm. that I also found it hard to access alternative medicines that I have experienced a lot of benefit from just because at that point I wasn't able to work and I didn't really have savings. I wasn't yeah. expecting at 23 to hit a, a huge wall in my ability to earn money. So... I had the expectation when I decided to make a comic out of this that perhaps something in the magic of art creation would be a better solution for me than any of those therapies or resources that I couldn't access. And that very quickly turned into a very intense pressure for the art to do that, to to become my savior. Ultimately, I think that pressure and that added financial burden of having to then pay to produce my works. And I had a Kickstarter at the beginning, but every sub- every subsequent issue had to be paid for another way. And there was a lot of you know generosity on the part of my family, but also just credit card debt that I'm trying to deal with now. And all of those pressures just kind of building up the pressures of like not being able to live my life the way I wanted, processing it through making comics that then I felt had to succeed and yeah. had to find a place in the world and that I had to spend money in order for that to happen. And they're not really making back multiple times what I put into them. So they weren't making it easier, <laughs> I'll say financially. But all of that pressure for the art to succeed and help me out financially and help me through the health crisis that I was in actually led to another one. So about two years into making Dumb, I experienced the same sudden onset of a very intense and debilitating pain, but in my hands. So I had to stop making Dumb. Uh, I know most people sort of shake their heads at this point too, like, oh wow. I stopped making Dumb. I lost the outlet for processing what I was experiencing. I still had the voice issue, so I just couldn't use my hands and I could, in a limited way, use my voice at that point. I really didn't know how to make money then. And for the second time in this experience, I went on welfare and racked up more debt because welfare is abysmally low. 
had to really dive into just that health side of things. So when you asked if I'm practicing things now to reduce my stress, like that mostly comes from that experience. I went into meditation deeply for the first time and that really changed things for me. I started studying craniosacral therapy, which is actually a part of my family. And I thought gentle enough that even if my hands never got better, I could probably continue that practice. I love plants. I started studying herbalism. I got much better at feeding myself and ultimately came back to drawing about a year, a year and a half later, having my life once again, totally flipped upside down and trying to find my way back to the things that were important to me. And once again, feeling like when I finish dumb, that pressure will be relieved. Something will be changed. And something certainly was, but I also kind of threw myself in the deep end of that emotional state that I had been in previously without enough support to make that a smooth process. So instead of art being something that like helped me through the journey of this and was cathartic in the process, it was sort of just a part of the problems I already had, and then very publicly a part of the problems I already had. It sounds like you didn't have much time to not take comics seriously. You didn't have much time to really dabble in it. I mean, you just sort of launched yourself in. I mean, all of a <laughs> yeah. sudden, like you start doing this thing in earnest, and you feel like you have to support yourself doing it. Obviously, for the vast majority of people, there's a much longer mm-hmm. ramp up to that. Yeah. And I don't even know. I I think other people are just so brave like that because they've said to me, like, I can't believe you just dove in and did this so from from such a place of commitment so early on. And I was like, well, I didn't have a choice. I had nothing else to do. I didn't have any other way to make money or make anything. I guess I had a stronger drive to make the art than I did to find some creative way to make money without a voice. And this is what came of it. You start experiencing the issue with your hands. I mean, what is what is your relationship to comics become at, at that point? Did you assume that you were just done for a while or possibly forever? Yeah, I sort of had to. Yeah. And that's like the first the first thing that has to happen in order to even allow creative thoughts to come through in the new condition that you're in is accept the condition. The condition of I can't use my voice is now a part of my life. So if I keep fighting against it and thinking, well, I can use it sometimes or I'll be able to use it soon, then I can't, I'm kind of limiting what I'm able to imagine could be the most helpful for myself because mm-hmm. I'm thinking of it only as temporary or as not real, which is also why saying that I'm a vocal abuser and that it's a stress-related thing was very unhelpful for me to try to find a path out or a path to just still being happy, still being in my life. The same thing with my hands. I had, I knew I had to very quickly accept what was going on. And the second time around, it was a little harder. But I did I did move quickly from, you know, I, I want to draw this thing. I'm so committed to drawing this thing. I've been building a pressure inside myself for this thing to be successful for two and a half years at that mm. point and poured so much time and energy and money into it. You know, some part of me was like, you can't quit now, even though it hurts. You know, this is you've come so far. And I just had to say, no, I might never finish this. I might never do it again. And that was... That was one of those knots, I think, sort of like instead of a instead of an accepting and embracing experience of like, yes, I may never do this again and I can still be happy and no one will think less of me for it. And if they do, I don't really need to care about that. I wish I had been more positive at the time. It was more of a giving up of like, okay, I I might never do this thing that makes me very happy. And this sadness is probably just going to be a part of my life that I'm not doing that. And I'm going to feel disappointed that this is how it went for a long time. And that's just the way it's going to go. A year or two or three years later now, I can look at it and be like, yeah, that that was just because it was so hard. It was 
hard the first time not to talk, but it was harder to give up writing and drawing a thing that I felt very personally attached to. The ability to give up something is very much a double-edged sword, right? And yeah. in, in a way, it can be freeing, but at the same time, especially when it's something that's personal that you, again, had poured two and a half years of your life into, perhaps it loses some of its value if it's something that you can give up on so easily. I mean, we we want to assume that we're going to be able to sort of like to power through things to kind of get through the pain. And if, and right. if that expression is that important, that we're fully committed to it, regardless of what pain it causes in our lives. Yeah, that's an interesting one, because I think that's really not, I can see the value of persevering through discomfort. And what that means for me now is very different than what it previously had, because I think the idea of pushing through the pain is very different than pushing through discomfort or than like meeting discomfort or sitting with discomfort or allowing discomfort. Because if you're really allowing pain to be happening and you're not pushing against it, then you'll respond and stop doing the thing that's causing the pain to take care of it. And so it's a very different thing to be uncomfortable is something to feel nervous about it, to feel uh, maybe insecure or like I'm judging myself and then to sort of gently overcome that. That's a way that I would love to be behaving in my life and behaving towards myself. I was very good for a long time at pushing through pain. And I knew that that was not a valuable way to carry on because it was likely to bring more pain. Yeah. It was exacerbating whatever underlying problem you had. Yeah. So it's it's definitely a difficult thing to introduce into a cultural narrative that may be embedded in the back of your mind or in your unconscious with just the framework of how you're looking at the world. And I was certainly fighting against that or, or trying to work with that. But the idea of it losing value, I think, was more of a personal attachment that I don't think any of the work I had previously put out into the world would cease to be important to people. It just wouldn't have become this this final book that I'm very proud of and that I'm happy is actually reaching more people than it would have if it had just been these small issues that I was distributing through very small channels. Oftentimes when I talk to people who do something that's autobiographical or based at least somewhat in their life, they feel the need to have some sort of distance from it. But you didn't really, you couldn't afford yourself that. In so much as this is personal and in so much as this is coping, perhaps there is an element of catharsis to it or at least sort of figuring out more about yourself and your condition as you essentially write through it. I do think I learned a lot. I do appreciate what I learned through that, through the process of of sharing it in that way. It wouldn't have been the same if I was just living my life without trying to create something. And that's a part of me. Like at any difficulty that I'm experiencing, I move to making something. Uh, not even about it. I mean, I, you know, I had a breakup once that my response to was like to take two of my favorite plaid shirts and a long white bed sheet and just tear them into shreds and then braid them and make that into a rug. And I spent probably two weeks just making this thing, like crying and making this thing and listening to podcasts and watching shows I liked and crying. Did it work? And it, it was great. Yeah. yeah. I have, I have a beautiful rug now. <laughs> well, yeah, the, the rug part worked. I mean, it turned into a rug, but was that healing? Was that cathartic? I mean, I can't speak to the specifics of it, which I think is part of how it works. It's like just kind of allowing yourself to do something that you enjoy in that way. And, and sometimes you just need to focus on something else for a while. It's true. Yeah. It serves many functions as a distraction and as something soothing, just having something to touch and, and a task to look towards as like a goal and something that will be enjoyed that has nothing to do with the pain that I'm in. It just happens to be being made at the same time. I think that's always, that's always really helpful for me. And then making this book, it was kind of like that, but it was definitely more intentional because I was discussing the specifics of the pain that I was in and I was trying to share it. And in trying to describe it to people, 
I don't think, I mean, I never really did it with anyone else in mind. It was just, it was just a, a generic audience, like someone with eyes will look at this mm-hmm. and, and then hopefully they'll understand something. But I have had a lot of people speak to me about the book, about sections, particularly in the beginning where there's a, a splitting that takes place and a couple of the experiences with the medical system when they've had a totally different health condition, something unrelated to the voice entirely, but shared with me that their experience was very clearly articulated in mind that when they read the book, it resonated such that they were like, thank you for giving this an outside understanding because I can't share this feeling with people very easily. I mean, obviously, you still have your hands and you didn't really lose, you know, function of your hands as, as much pain as you were going through. Well, it's, it's just healed a lot since then. Ultimately, what was the more difficult thing for you to cope with? And what was the more sort of life altering experience, a loss of voice or the loss of hands? I just cooked for myself for like a year um, because I needed up, to these do other that. things that yeah. we take granted, open doors, things like that. Yeah. I mean, it all, the thing is I, everything I did took a, took a toll. Like it was always pain that would come after. So I just really had to limit it and listen to the pain. And then it was more of an existential journey at that point because I didn't just lose my hands and still have my voice. I actually hadn't, I didn't have access to either one Mm. of them freely at the time. So that was much harder just because it was a buildup of both. They were both really, really difficult, personal, emotional journeys for me. And I think I, what, when I mentioned earlier, like untying the emotional knots, yeah, it's it's become very important to me to have health as a as a focus and as a priority, not only for myself and my life, but actually as something that I'm continually communicating to people because I can only imagine how much harder it would be to lose your voice or lose your hands after 50 years of mm-hmm. one way of life and after even longer than that. And trying to trying to appreciate that these things happened to me early in my life is hard because they were still so painful. But it's also something that I'm grateful for is that I was young enough to not have such a solidified sense of self that it was like totally earth shattering for them to happen. I still had flexibility in how I looked at myself. So making these changes was difficult, but maybe less difficult than they would be for someone else. And having that position of sharing still how hard it was, hopefully that will ease other people's passages when they maybe are in a more static version of themselves after so many years of, you know, self-knowledge and and experience and evidence of what they're normally capable of and then having that taken away. Like, I hope this book is a comfort. Do you think you would be a cartoonist in the way that you are now? I mean, do you think that you would have a book at this point had you not gone through this? I have no idea, actually. Like, I I had made a few short comics before this happened, but they were very short and very kind of whimsical, um, like basically weirdo gag strips. And then I basically felt the pressure of my personal taste not being matched by my skill and capability. And that really held me back from making comics for a few years. You couldn't necessarily do the comics that you wanted to do. It just didn't look how I wanted it to. And I wasn't really sure what I was saying anyway. Um, I have learned just over and over again that for me, stories that I want to tell come from a place of deep, compelling urgency for their for their sort of mission. They're like belonging in the world. Like I'm really trying to fill needs that I see. And that's just how I function. So when I thought of being a cartoonist before this happened to me, I basically just questioned every idea that came into my head is like, but does that really need to happen? Does this story really need to be told? I'm not even that interested in it. Like I can, sure, I can make up there was a man and he had this job and he did this thing and he had these difficulties, but it never felt real enough for me to be as committed to producing it as I would have to be to overcome my own fears. And then as soon as this happened, really within like a number of hours of 
realizing this is a very serious issue I have with my voice. And if I'm going to take it seriously, I'm going to have to drastically change my life. Very quickly, I thought, oh, this is my story. This is the thing that will help me overcome all of these pains because no one is going to tell this story if not me. And if it doesn't happen now, I might never. So that compelled me into producing the book and also, you know, heaped on a bunch of pressure. But it did give me the motivation and the sense of security in just that I have a story, that I have a voice, that I have something that other people don't to share. But I do see that it has value beyond myself because voice is something we all share. And health concerns, health at all, is something that we all share. So it had a beautiful kind of bridging of personal and universal, and it felt right. So I did it. It's also a lot of pressure to put on yourself for a follow-up. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you could say that, except I'm actually very compelled by a current uh, obsession. So I'm I'm right in the very beginning stages of producing something that will be actually about trauma, which is how I process the experience with my hands. Trying to figure out what was going on with, you know, why did my body concentrate pain and tension in my voice? And then how did it go to my hands? And how did it happen to be that these two things are the most important things in the world to me, that expressing myself vocally has always been a, a strong part of my identity and making things with my hands has also been just integral to me functioning in the world. So these two incredibly important things disappearing in a very short amount of time close to one another. And when I'm very young, I couldn't really explain it and no one really could explain it to me either. But then when I started to read about trauma, just from some very smart therapist who mentioned it to me and gave me some books to read, it was the first time I ever saw my experience on the page and felt very understood by what was being written. And then I read everything else about trauma and it was so enlightening and has really helped me approach the world and myself in a very different way. And I see it everywhere. I see the way that an understanding of trauma might be beneficial to people treating one another with more care and with more openness and also the ways in which we could be much kinder to ourselves if we had that model just to integrate into our understandings of one another. So I'm writing a book that has two storylines, one of which is very much uh, describing and explaining trauma as a concept and how it heals and how it works and integrating lots of information I've gained from all of the big long reading list that I went through and continue to go through, but then also sharing a lot of experiences of trauma uh, through a second storyline. And then they sort of crack together and become a part of one another so that there can be a, something like a resolution or a wholeness at the end. It sounds like you're excited about it. I'm very excited about it. Yeah. I, I just sort of figured out my motivation or my compulsions or my obsessions as a cartoonist is very much in how the form can convey an experience mm -hmm. to someone, not just the the details of my experience. So I had this idea to write about trauma for a long time. And then just this last year, I sort of understood how the form was going to become a part of the book. And it makes it so much more exciting to me. And I'm like ready to draw it now. There you go. That was Georgia Weber. Her book, Dumb, is out now on Fanographics. Thanks so much to her for taking the time. Thanks to Jack at Fanographics for helping to set up that conversation. Thanks to you guys, as always, for listening to the program. If you like the show, there are a number of ways to support us. Please rate and review us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify. We have a brand new YouTube page for those who like to consume podcasts that way. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Tumblr. That's riylcast.tumblr.com. That is the first and best place to get all of your RIYL-related information. If you have any feedback, it's riylcast at gmail.com. And that's about all we got for this week, so stick around because we are going to be back just about this time next week with another episode of RIYL.